Elizabeth Alexander writes, if you love and then lose a person, as we all do in some way or another, you do not lose the love you were given and participated in. It is indelible. Part of this indelibility comes from the living of life. So I, that's the takeaway that I'm leaving of like, how do we build our homes and, and communities that are infused by beauty and whatever that beauty might be for you, like what color of your walls will remind you of home and like what poetry will help you like find these daily to help you make meaning of your world. Today, a celebration of love, art, beauty, and the human soul. A study of how we grieve the sudden loss of those we call the loves of our lives. And a moving, heroic ode to her late husband, Fikre, with poet Elizabeth Alexander's memoir, The Light of the World. I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Emma Larkins. She may be one of the most vivacious readers I know. Emma has a house full of books and her Goodreads and Instagram are always shifting with new recommendations. In addition to her love of reading, Emma is committed to justice and equity issues in education. And I have learned a lot from her, particularly about gender, race, and social activism. We recorded this conversation in August of 2020. I sort of have been starting all of my conversations by having people talk a little bit about their reading life and Mm -hmm. the history of their reading life. One thing that I know about you is that you are such an avid and voracious reader, Mm -hmm. uh, which kind of ties the two of us together in a particular way. And I'm so glad that I know you, Mm -hmm. someone else, because you're such a reader. So when I asked you about that, how did you start to think about it? I think first off, it it was an interesting question because for me, reading almost feels like brushing my teeth. Like it's just like, this is just a feature of my day. Like in most cases, I wake up, I grab my coffee and I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of like transitions me into my day mm. and I end with reading. And sometimes I even like on my lunch break, like, I don't know, it's just become this almost grounding exercise for me. But I also, I thought about my childhood and because like it it does feel so normalized for me i've i've just all i've always been this way um Mm. when it comes to reading like i was very much that kid who um i got in trouble for bringing my books to the dinner table or 
staying up too late. Like I would get caught under my covers with the flashlight reading and um, no one else in my family really read. So it did make me sort of this kind of anomaly. Like I, I think my parents, bless them, were just sort of like, like, why does this have to be a contentious point? Like, I'm going to put down your books and, like, join the human world. Um, but for me, it just brought this wonderful escape from a pretty chaotic and, like, very loving, but just, like, very chaotic home. I was right in the middle child of five, and um, there was just always a level of noise and activity that, to me now, knowing that I have anxiety, I can name like, you know, reading was a way for me to manage these feelings of like, everything in my environment is out of control. Mm. Um, to me, and how I felt. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know, reading has just always been my favorite mode of learning. Um, I am, I think, probably intensely curious and reading is just like a wonderful venue for that um so you said it's also just a source of pleasure yeah so you said that you didn't grow up in a family of readers Mm -hmm. so how do you feel like you found reading to begin with or how did you discover that it was something joy inducing or anxiety reducing or pleasurable Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was trying to figure that out as I was reflecting on this question and I don't remember, but we definitely did have a home where there were books. Like I, I sort of, I do have very like strong memories of scavenging like my sister's bookshelves and had teachers who I think saw that they couldn't keep me in the curriculum fast enough. And so I got to use the library, um, you're talking to the fifth grade accelerated reader champion. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I loved my elementary school librarians and they would, you know, help me find um, books that were increasingly bigger and, you know, on things that I was curious about at the time. So I don't remember how I got into reading, but I know that I definitely had people who, who found ways to foster and to to help me. who encouraged me in that way. Mm-hmm. I see all your color-coded red books behind you. <laughs> you should tell people about that. What do you do with your books at your house? I, I have them color-coded, which some people have called me a psychopath, and that's fine. Um, but for me, when I am thinking of a book, I do this in class too to my professor sometimes, and it drives them bananas, but I'll be like, oh, it's you know, the book that has the red cover and that person's face. So for me, I remember a book visually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I like an orderly home. And I just know if I did alphabetizing, because I, I used to do that, that I can't keep up fast enough. Or if it's not right, it just doesn't feel as good. So um, all of my books are arranged by colors because I – can still find all of my titles and the books that I'm looking for. So I do have them pulled out. Like my, my school books are in their own shelves, but pretty much everything else is arranged by color. That's amazing. <laughs> How do you decide what you're going to read? What do you like reading in general? Well, 
right now, if I'm in, if I'm in uh, a term, like my, my class reading has to come first, but then beyond that, I, I think it, it just depends on how I'm feeling, what level of emotional engagement I'm looking to get into. Maybe sometimes like current events will shape um, or if there's a book that's in kind of conversations that I'm listening or reading about. Um, but I, I usually start each month with an idea of like, if I feel good, I'd like to get to these books and I'll kind of use that. But I'm, I'm not great with having books assigned to me outside of a class setting. So if someone like I've had trouble with book clubs because if I don't want to read the book, I'm not going to. And that's sure. Yeah. Pretty counter to the point of it. Yeah. I, I do think like my mood and my emotional capacity tends to dictate. So what's the, of- what's the range of what you read? Do you read mostly fiction, memoir, autobiography? What, like, what are the things that you're engaged with? It's really a little bit of everything. Um, like I can, like in the month of July, it was, there was some mystery. There was mm. a little bit of fantasy. Like I've been digging into N.K. Jemison because I just was like, I'm kind of tired of this world right now. And I, I could see other world systems. And I think N.K. Jemison does like world building really um, an interesting way. So I did that. Memoir, nonfiction. I'm trying to catch up on some class reading. So that tends to be more sociological, gender theory. Um, there's really no rhyme or reason. I, I kind of love a little bit of everything. So do you just literally sit down at the beginning of a month and just say to yourself, this is what I'm going to do this month? Like you sort of take a check of where you're at temperamentally or emotionally and be like, this is what I'm doing. Pretty much. Yeah. I have um, like, like I have some class reading that I know I need to get to just in terms of like my dissertation progression. So those are like higher on my list of priorities, but I just start making piles. Like I just pull things off my shelf of like, I, yeah, and I just kind of make piles, and like as I um, am called to it, I read it throughout the month. <laughs> That's amazing. Not always. You listen to a lot of audiobooks? I have in uh, quarantine. I am usually a solid, like two or three audiobooks a month. Really? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Um, I'm, I multitask. So you can do it while doing other things and you still get the same amount out of a book? I'm, I'm very careful about the type of book that I do on audiobook. Um, but especially lately when I've had a, yeah, it's a, I find like, I just love walking and walking and walking mm-hmm. and listening to an audiobook or um, doing a puzzle or sometimes chores, like I find it very relaxing and it's been a really good antidote for my, my anxiety. Yeah. I don't do everything. Like I don't do a lot of nonfiction. 
I find it's really fun to reread because I'm not trying to like capture every sure. single detail. Um, I like it that way. But like, for example, like Trevor Noah's book, I read Born that. Born a Crime. Mm-hmm. I read yeah. that for the first time by audio. And for me, it was a completely different experience than reading it on paper. Like I just loved like hearing his impersonation of his mom. And I don't know, for me, it was a much richer experience hearing it from him than me reading it. about your relationship to this book, how you Mm -hmm. found it, why you think it's so important for people to be aware of it. I think for me, it's that this book just like felt so supremely precious. Like it just like, if there's like a quadrant of my heart, it's like Elizabeth Alexander in this book now. So it's been on my shelf for a while and I just, it was one of those mood reads that I had pulled in May. And I'm actually really glad that I read it now and not, you know, three or four years ago, because something about just where I am in my relationship and my, my romantic partnership um, to be more specific, but also just in kind of my life experience, like this book just like, took me out at my knees. And I think four years ago, I would have read it as a text, you know, just like, Mm. I think I probably would have recognized the beauty of Alexander's writing, but I don't think it would have just like completely kind of unsettled me personally in the ways that it did um, because of, you know, by way of where I was in my life at that time. Um, But I, um, so you but, read the book and you've listened to it on audio. You did it both ways because we were sort of communicating a little bit before the episode. Yeah, I was terrified that I would uh, like forget something important or sure. I don't know. So, and um, Alexander reads her audio book and it's mm-hmm. under four hours. So I, mm-hmm. I felt like it would just lend a different uh, perspective on it. So you said that the book has a particular emotional resonance for you having just read it recently. Mm -hmm. What would you say are some of the reasons that that emotional resonance comes through? Which parts of the book really tugged at your emotional heartstrings? Mm -hmm. Well, it is a book of her processing grief yeah. and I and I think for anyone who has experienced loss or just you know like we're all going to experience loss at some point and so yeah. I think it's just this wonderful this wonderful portrait of a grief cycle um, mm-hmm. but 
before like anyone thinks like, oh, it's just about death. Like it's also this, for me, it was as much about life as it was about death. You just see this like beautiful, gentle, quiet story of two people who are profoundly in love. And I think because it was this like quiet, gentle story of their love told in vignettes and just like how they learned to have two tea kettles and how they chose a home. And like, it it wasn't this like grand sweeping travelogue of two people who like pursue the world. And they did that, but that wasn't the story she told about their relationship. And to me, that was so moving. It is a profoundly sad book um, Mm. in a certain way. Uh, Books rarely make me cry. Uh, A good marker of a book is if I am crying. And I think that, well, I cried a lot when I was reading this book. Like (laughs) I would go through these like emotional waves. And I think part of the reason is because the way that Alexander constructs the book is that she sort of, you know, if you read the jacket cover that it's about the sudden loss of her husband yeah. or the death. She has that beautiful line in there about like, why do we say that we've lost our husbands right. when right. we won't find them? Like they're, yeah. they're, they're dead, they're gone. The way that she constructed the book is very interesting in terms of taking you through, like you said, this grief cycle, the emotional issues that come up around he's here one day he's gone the next Mm -hmm. it's very sudden Mm -hmm. it's tragic what happens to him um how do you feel like she is able to do that because the book itself is not written in this very difficult language it's not dense Right? right? It's not this overly dense memoir like they mm-hmm. sometimes can be. It's it's very light to a mm-hmm. certain way. It, it feels light, even, mm-hmm. well, the title of the book, The Light of the World. You know, mm-hmm. what about the way that she writes does that? I think because it is so simple, you understand the magnitude of her loss. Yeah. And, and I think she does... She, she tells so many of those little stories just to show you that, like, for her, Fikre was the light of her world mm-hmm. or a light in her world. And so when she, and I think you get just, like, this sense for, like, she's lost her partner and her lover and the father of her children, but also you know, the the person who had all of these random little pockets of knowledge. Like she she has a, in one of the sections, she writes about like all the books she'll never read because he won't be there to tell her to read them. Oh my gosh. And I think you also get like, it could have been very easily like this book that is talking about, you know, well, she she's also grappling with the injustice of the loss that, that he hmm. ate blueberries and flaxseed oh, right. and ran on the treadmill and she ate bacon. And, yeah. uh, you know, like, why is it that he's gone 
and so young. I, he was, I think, 55. Um, he was 50. So, 50, thank you. Yeah, so you just get this sense of like her grappling with the future that she's not going to get with him because he's gone and gone so soon. And for me, that just like, that just destroyed me. Yeah, I I appreciate you bringing up the 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 thing about the books because this is one of the quotes that I pulled, and I, I love this section. the 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 book is broken up into these four different um these four different sections, and two of the sections have are labeled after lines of poetry. She's, of mm. course, a poet. And the mm-hmm. book itself is titled after a line of poetry from one of their favorite poets, Derek Walcott. Mm-hmm. But she, she has this section in the grieving process where she finally goes to a bookstore mm-hmm. some months after he has passed. And she says, quote, he is the ghost of all bookstores. Carrying home a bag of books, I think of all the books I will never know about because you will not show them to me. I think of the loss of knowledge, all the things I will never know because you are not here to tell me. I cannot ask questions. I cannot be reminded. It's on page 148. is painted in a very heroic way and i think that he's also painted in a very worldly almost otherworldly way to a certain uh, degree and this is one of the things that you pulled out one of your quotes which i think is a point that's that's really worth talking about um it's your fifth quote and i wondered if you'd read it and then i, I want to talk a little bit about how she creates his character and how we become emotionally attached to Fikra as, as a person who is a part of the story, but is obviously gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the passage is from page 212 and Alexander writes, but he lives in its pages and like other heroes of literature, he teaches us something good about how to live our days in detail. Every day can have beauty and tenderness at the simplest level of the meal and a flower in a garden. Every day can contain some small pleasure. Every act can have integrity, be courageous, and be guided by kindness. Yeah, he is this wonderful, almost idyllic man in the book. He knows seven languages. He knows how to cook. He's a painter. He <laughs> reads books. He's a lover of children. Mm-hmm. He has a great laugh. He knows how to garden. I mean, he's got all of these. I don't know. Just what did you think about him as a person as you got to know him in the book? He, yeah, Fikre is this like 
he does come off as this savant in so many ways of someone mm, who can that's decide, a good word. decide to paint and become a professional at it or loves cooking. So he opens a restaurant where yeah. he's making Eritrean food um, because he's a refugee from Eritrea and mm-hmm. You know, he just does these things and he seems to be able to do all of them flawlessly. Right. And I guess in to that, I I didn't feel a need to question Alexander on it. Like it is her mm-hmm. memoir and it is her remembering her husband and her processing the loss of him. And um, there's a, there's a, a passage where she's finally kind of um, cleaning out their home and she's describing like he had received a bread, um, a bread maker. And so he had bought all of these different types of um, flowers because he was going to, you know, master all these different things. And I was like, like I had such a clear vision of this man who like, has a passion of the month and he goes really hard at it. And like how frustrating that might be for her. Like, why do we need five types of flour when we just, you know, like you are not a friend, like a, like bread making isn't your profession. Um, So I, I guess I didn't need like a, here are all of his flaws as well. I, I was willing to let her make him the hero of this story. And I think, he he does feel heroic in so many ways as someone who survived a war in Eritrea and had to go through so much to become the man that he did in being in escaping Eritrea and having to live in so many countries and um, his family tells Alexander like you're so lucky to have a man who has drunk his water like he's had this whole wild yeah. life before you met him. And so now he's content at home and with family. And like he, he's lived his life in the wild ways that he needed to, to become the person that he did who met you. And I don't know, I, I was willing to let him be a hero. I didn't need, I didn't need to know about his flaws for the purpose of this book. Oh yeah, and I'm not really sure that's what I was um saying. I was mm. I was mostly saying like I think the thing is though that like you said something that at the beginning where you said you know, this really isn't just a book about loss. It's a book about life mm. and about how to live. And that is exactly what I was thinking as I went through the book. I even had written that in one of my margins. I was like, this is a book about how to live a good life, how to live a life of beauty, how to overcome terrible situations and still come out on the other side as a person who is well-rounded and just vivacious about life. Like I I felt like he was a vivacious person. You know, he just, I just want to, I know, I want to know how to cook. I want to listen to all the music. Mm -hmm. I want to like, even the thing about like, he, he liked to wear 
flashy colors out in public, you know, like a pop of color, pink, right, was his color. Um, I just like pictured this man and I was like, I totally get it. I can totally see it. Mm-hmm. He's a beautiful person. Yeah. You know, for you, what are some of the things that you're taking away from the book in terms of how to live a good life? I did think a lot about that because she does present her husband as someone who was so profoundly driven by a sense of purpose and who seemed to mm. have maybe less concern with the delivery. Like it wasn't like I am an artist and this is my gift to the world. And like for a time it seems like maybe that was, but that he was so centered on community and the pursuit of beauty and care for his people. And it seems like that was a pretty extended community of people but that he took such purpose in the pursuit of those pieces that I found incredibly inspiring and and again I think like my my context really made it all the more powerful because I am finding myself in this like weird middle space in terms of my career and like I recently was put into a job that I myself did not choose. And, and for me trying to untangle purpose and career has been something I've been working on or thinking a lot about and to find this, this example or this narrative of someone who found a lot of purpose, not in his profession, but in the way that he lived, I, I thought was incredibly impactful And I think how Alexander shows you how they managed that together in their partnership was really, for me, a powerful model as well. Yeah. Well, his art is really important. He also seems like someone who was quite, I don't want to say shy, but he was humble. There's something about, he's a painter Mm -hmm. and he paints a lot of these images of angels and nature scenes and other types of things. She goes a bit into that. Um, But there's also that scene where she talks about how he didn't want to sell any of his work. He he was this beautiful sentiment about art outlives the person. And he Mm -hmm. sort of thought of it as like a way of, of dealing with his grief, his anxiety from what happened to him as a a child. I think this is another one of the quotes that I pulled out from page 17. This is actually like an interview that I think Fikra did. Um, And he said that his paintings flowed out of me, very painful and direct. They had to do with the suffering, persecution, and subsequent psychological dilemmas I endured before and after becoming a young refugee from the independence war. Mm. Painting was the miracle, the final act of defiance through which I exercised the pain and reclaimed my sense of place, my moral compass, and my love for life. 
she's asking herself and trying to figure this out for herself of mm-hmm. of how much how much can you remember like how much of your yeah. day do you spend remembering um i don't know it, it felt like she was asking herself like how much of this should i be doing you know like how much do you hold on to in that way before it becomes not not productive isn't the word but, but just how do you move forward yeah and in fact i think it's a profound question that comes at the end of the book in the afterward it might even be like in the reading notes or something it's it's not part of the narrative but she she asked this question she says how do you start again and carry the past within you why is it important to carry that with us? And I agree with you. I feel like the book is to a certain extent, this kind of examination of memory work and mm. what is the role of memory and how, cause she keeps having these moments where she says like, I have these memories. I have to write them down cause they might be fleeting. But then at what point do I have to stop writing them down? And you mentioned the cleaning out of the house. Mm -hmm. How long do you hold on to stuff? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are all these things. They're not really well elaborated on. They don't need to be. They're just, you can imagine it. Another one for me was like this. She says, I paid his cell phone bill for a year and a half after he died because I didn't want to lose his text messages. Yeah. And so you think about, wow, to how do you, when do you decide? How do you decide? The paintbrushes, the flour mm-hmm. and the bread machine, like you talked about, the and even the house itself. Right. The physical house. I don't know. And I and I think she makes this incredibly brave decision of he's not here anymore he's not in this home Mm -hmm. and i think just even if you haven't experienced loss it's easy to imagine wanting to just stay like like he chose this home and he is in the wall colors and the garden and so i'm just gonna stay here and that you know cements my my memory and my relationship to him but she she does decide like he's not here so our time in this home is done and and she moves to new york and i just i thought that was incredibly brave and also painful <laughs> the other part of this book that i just thought was so these are actually the parts of the book that probably made me cry the most was all these questions about what is the human soul Mm. And how do you how do you determine when somebody has quote unquote gone? Mm-hmm. Like not just their physical body, but like their soul, their essence mm-hmm. is no longer there anymore. Those mm-hmm. were the parts for me, Emma, that made me cry mm. uncontrollably. On page 42, for example. 
now I know for sure the soul is an evanescent thing and the body is its temporary container because I saw it. I saw the body with the soul in it. I saw the body with the soul leaving and I saw the body with the soul gone. Mm -hmm. There's even this, there's this section in the beginning when he dies where she, she says this thing about the soul is the soul of a human is captured in the last breath. Mm -hmm. And she has this line, which is so painful to read about the soul fear. Fikre breathed his last breath into me when I opened his mouth and breathed everything I had into him. Mm. He felt like a living person. Then I am certain his soul was there. Mm-hmm. Ooh, <laughs> I just, I couldn't handle it. It was so painful. Mm-hmm. So painful. Mm-hmm. And it's like that tentative questioning of like did I capture his last breath but then throughout the book you can tell she's taught she's spoken with all of these medical professionals and in one case the doctor says you know he was he was gone before you got to him um and so like does it does it matter like to her she felt like she captured his last breath to him, he felt like he was still there, that he saw her face one last time in the hospital in spite of all these different insights lended by medical professionals. And I don't think, I don't know. To me, it didn't feel like there was an answer, but I don't think there needs to be. But just asking those questions, I think is, it, it, it is hard. Yeah. I Have you ever I, experienced loss like this? Yeah, um not of a partner or anything in that way, but I think mm-hmm. the loss of my grandparents and several aunts. I I did think a lot about that because it did make me think of my own cycles with that and where there is a time where like every day right after like you like something makes me think of them or you know Mm. and the process of like helping clean out their homes and having to make some of those decisions and just how painful that is but then even now having realization of like oh I haven't thought about grandpa and like like really explicitly thought about grandpa in a while and like that in its own way is painful. And then also experiencing life moments of like, I'm getting a doctorate. Like I would love to tell my aunt Judy about that because she would just like lose her mind. Like this is everything she used to say she envisioned for me or like wondering, you know, with my partner, like how would have introducing him to my grandparents, you know, what would that have been like? Or, mm-hmm. or just like knowing like, certain people aren't going to see these benchmark moments for me. And like, that's hard. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like she touches so profoundly on there's the moment of death 
you know, she tried to save him after he had his heart attack and Mm -hmm. she couldn't. So there's the breath thing and there's the soul leaving the body. Mm -hmm. But then there's like this idea all throughout the book that like somebody's essence, you know, if you think about it as like spirit, she doesn't use the word spirit, but like their essence, their spirit is like in a place for a time. Mm -hmm. But then eventually that goes away. And it seems to me like what she's trying to do is say the process of grieving is about coming to terms with the fact that at some point they, they are really gone. Like the, mm-hmm. it, it, they are gone. And it's not, it's not the moment when the body actually physically dies. There's, there's some elongated period. And I don't think that it, it's going to be different for every single person, mm-hmm. you know, but I just, I just thought she did a masterful job of explaining like how, you know, it's time to let go and move on. I wanted to ask you about the second quote that you pulled out. Um, and I, and I do like this part of the book. Um, but I wonder if you would read it and just talk about why this is something you pulled out. Mm-hmm. So the passage is from page 73 and um, she writes, we knew somehow that it was her, as I now know, the ravenous hawk came to take Fikre. Do I believe that? Yes, I do. Poetic logic is my logic. And this is coming in a broader context of they see a fox, I believe. And a red fox. Yes. And like in that fox, they are confident that that is Fikre's mother or spirit of Fikre's mother mm-hmm. and um, prior to his death there's a hawk that continues to come to the garden and Fikre is enamored with this bird and has videos of it and she later finds that he was trying to make like all these acrostics from it and um, but this this hawk came to like take on this level of relationship to him and and she believes that this hawk is is figure came to usher him into into death and i guess for me i just i loved that this was one of several vignettes that she offers into what she calls poetic logic but for me was this broader relationship or um fluidity that she but also their family has between um like almost like i guess spiritualism is the word that i want to have for it balanced with science that there's this like and i guess poetic logic is a nice term for it in this like it doesn't follow any sort of rules of science or 
physics or, you know, what we know to be like, quote unquote, real. But for her, it's real. And she believes it. And it like, it grounds her in her relationship to her husband. And there's another another passage where um, with the birth of her son, a friend gives her an evil eye and tells her to tuck it in his blankets. Um, and then a family member gets sick and they have like the evil eye up on the wall and then NIH on the speed dial, you know, to research clinical trials. And so I just, for me, I think I probably fall mm. into that as well. And so I just, I like, I love that, like something that someone else who is maybe more like it must be scientific um but just like the sense of comfort that can come with and like that hawk ushered my husband into death and like her relationship to that hawk and to these kind of this willingness to believe in something that's spiritual i don't know i i just i i loved that and this idea of poetic logic yeah, I loved it too. I mean, it's interesting to hear you speak about it in terms of the relationship between science and there's something about this book in relation to also lawn time is what I call it. The ancestors, the historical relationship to Eritrea, for example, right? Mm -hmm. There's even this scene where she talks talks about you know, her and Figre getting falling in love and getting married is this this wedding between East Africa and West Africa because they come from different parts of the continent. They got here differently, right? Figre is yeah. a refugee from the Ethiopian Eritrean uh, War for Independence. Her family got here through slavery and then eventually had purchased their independence. So this this connection of time feels so important to me in the book. And I, like her, believe in all of that kind of stuff, like these animals, these plants that you become like part of the spirit of the planet. I totally get that. What about um, your first quote right from the beginning of the book? So on uh, page three, I think it actually might be the first page of the story. What's that? I, I think this is literally the second sentence from the It's book. the second sentence in the book. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's perfect. It's um, wonderful. She writes, perhaps tragedies are only tragedies in the presence of love, which confers meaning to loss. Loss is not felt in the absence of love. Mm-hmm. And... To me, I, I, I think that's, you know, encapsulated in so much of what we've talked about that this, both in the piece around, it's as much about death as it is about life. Yeah. Um, but that this book is only so devastating because there, there is, there is so much love that is just like so palpable throughout this book that for you, you know, this is a tragedy for her. Um, and, and yeah, just that those two are in conversation that it, it feels like a tragedy because there is so much love and that that's giving meaning to her grief. 
What does the book tell us about love? Well, and I saw in your notes, like you, you made a note that like she doesn't use the word love very much. It's which, really not in the book that much. It's yeah. very minimal. And yet you feel the intensity of the love. Right. It's one of the parts of the book that I most appreciated. Yeah, I, I do as well. And I guess I'm trying to figure out what I want to say about it. On the, in one of the other passages that we've already talked about, this idea of sacred love. Mm-hmm. Um, but, okay, I'm going to tell a side story. I was curious and I went on Goodreads because I find rankings just like impossible and most often I don't do it. But I was really curious about what people who read this and gave it a one star thought, because for me, it was such a profound book. Oh, fascinating. Um, Okay. So I read the one star or I read it before. I was like, oh my gosh. And a lot of times people were like, this perfect husband dies. And, you know, it's just like this glorification of this man. And I think in the hands of a less skilled writer or maybe with less nuance, I could a hundred percent see that. But because like, it isn't like this, like amplified love story, like because there is so much nuance, it's about their love, but it's not, I don't, I'm, I'm not being coherent, but like, it's just like, you get to see like the, the depth in it that, um, that there were so many, layers to this narrative that like it is a love story but it it's not just that um what i learned about love and what i think people could take away from this book about love is that love is in the everyday mm, mm -hmm. love is in the making of lentil soup Mm -hmm. love is in the planting of flowers that are guaranteed to bloom on your birthday yeah. Love is in picking the kids up or, you know, even that last day, when the day that he dies, there's this reading that's going to happen on campus. And it was her day to pick up the kids from, from the basketball practice or whatever they were doing. And he says, oh, no, you go to the reading and I'll pick the kids up and you mm-hmm. enjoy the reading, right? Mm-hmm. So it just felt like love was in these everyday acts of existence. Love is like this beautiful everyday thing. It's even in the color schemes. It's in the shirt that he wears, you know, the music he plays. Even even the little tiny details, which I appreciated about like, oh, when he dreams, he sometimes talks in his sleep. (laughs) but he talks in his native tongue and we used to stand there and watch and listen for him. And that's love. That's Mm -hmm. what love is. The little Mm -hmm. things that no one else knows about. I just, I thought that was really well done and really beautiful.
to our, our conversation around love, on page 76, there's mm-hmm. a passage um, where she writes, each of us made it possible for the other. We got mm. something done. Each believed in the other unsurpassingly. In all marriages, there is struggle, and ours was no different in that regard. But we always came to the other shore, dusted off, and said, there you are, my love. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my book is like waterlogged. <laughs> but I think that that vision of a of a partnership of a and like you said that that the day before he passed of his being like of course you have to be at that presenter like you have to be there. Um and I I think that for me was what made their love feel sacred and and really special and reflects, you know, in my own partnerships and friendships of like, how do we make each other's dreams possible or just, you know, like our, our, our day to days possible and how do we see each other? And even when there's struggle to be able to come back and like have that foundation of love. I, yeah, one of the lines that I thought was really sad in the book was, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think it's something to the effect of, you know, Fikre was supposed to be an elder, mm. but his days were too short or sure. something. They were too mm-hmm. short. Yeah. So something about like the worldliness and the wisdom. And I think it connects back to all of this stuff about what the function of art is in our life. And that goes to the title of the book for me, because the title of the book is from this epigraph or from this line of poetry by Derek Walcott. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's in, it's in the epigraph, uh, mm-hmm. three things here. Um, but it's the middle one. Oh, beauty, you are the light of the world. Mm-hmm. So the book for me says so much about what is the function of art and beauty in being, not just in our daily lives, but I think also in being able to deal with grief. Mm-hmm. So what are your kind of takeaways, your final takeaways from the book? What would you tell people? Why should they read it? What's important about it? I mean, I'd probably just like make noises. (laughs) Just Just do it. (laughs) But I guess like in some ways it could be read as a grief manual. Like, I don't know. I just think this book has everything. (laughs) That's why I love it so much is that for me, I'm, I'm putting it back on the shelf with this firmer belief that you can lead a beautiful, incredible life and that it happens, like you said, in those daily moments. And I think in my own partnership, it, it does make me, I am a person who loves checklists and order and safety um, and that and that partnership is is in I think unsettling that a little bit, but also that it can be in that daily order in those quiet moments in the garden in the morning of of how you build 
a friendship or a partnership, you know, whatever the case might be in, in seeing each other. Hmm. I think I'm taking away from the book that one should really be intentional Mm. about living their life in a certain, with a certain type of beauty. The parts of the book that I just loved the most were all this stuff about cooking. I mean, there's even recipes in the book, right? I'm going to try to make some of these meals because they sound so delicious. The music he would listen to, laughing with the kids, having a sleepover Mm -hmm. with your kids in bed, Mm -hmm. poetry. I think this, this piece that you're talking about and that I also really resonated with is like their home almost becomes like this other character in the book that they had this wonderfully open home that was just always prepared for a guest like she describes like bringing someone home unexpectedly and the tea kettle was on already and he had laid out almonds and he was just like the lights were all on and they were just like ready and I think I am in like by nature, just not that type of a person, but I left Mm -hmm. this book like, and I know that for my partner, it it really is like he has grown up very communally. And so Mm. like thinking about like, how do we build a home that is prepared for other people, for our community, but then also like infused with all of this beauty and like whatever that beauty might be for you, like, what color of your walls will remind you of home and like what poetry will help you like find these daily to help you make meaning of your world and so I that's the takeaway that I'm leaving of like how do we build our homes and and communities that are infused by beauty and yeah Emma Larkins is a practitioner in higher education, going on seven years. She currently works at Oregon State University, where she is also a PhD student in the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program. When not working or focused on schoolwork, Emma is probably reading or running with an audiobook going. She is endlessly curious and loves the process of learning. Emma is passionate about social justice and the pursuit of more equitable, just futures. You can contact Emma via email, e.lee.larkins at gmail.com, or follow her on Instagram, at elarkins. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at Rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where you can also listen to an unedited version of my conversation with Emma. We discuss Alexander's guiding of her sons through the loss of their father, the role of religion in the book and grieving process, 
and the ways the book enhances our appreciation of time, stories, beginnings, and endings. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.risoreader.com, where I've also included a link to a Spotify playlist I created just for this book. The Light of the World frequently references a range of musicians and songs that were important to Elizabeth and Fikre's life together. I hope this playlist brings you joy and enhances your reading experience. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader.